and we're already in year 11 or so, right? Yes. How come we can't have 15 or 20 or 25 years without a recession? And I genuinely think that is where this Fed is going. And if inflation needs to run hot because of that, so be it, because we got to kind of make up for lost time anyway. You're about to hear my conversation with Dustin Reed. We spoke about all things macro, including why the U.S. Federal Reserve will target higher inflation, European fiscal spending and the likelihood of it increasing, predictions on the U.S. election, and the best place to eat in New York City under $40. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to Bites and Insights, the podcast designed to give you insights on how our investors manage client money. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm excited to be here with Dustin Reed. Dustin is the Vice President and Chief Fixed Income Strategist at McKenzie. He joined back in 2018. Prior to that, he was the Chief Market Strategist at Medley Global Advisors. Dustin, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I look forward to a wide-ranging conversation. Let's get started with your early career. Uh, one of your foundational roles was at UBS. Describe to me what you did there and why you describe it as foundational. Sure. Yeah, I was at UBS for four years from uh, from 98 to 02. I started uh, in Toronto here as, uh, as an economist, uh, working for their chief economist. Uh, and then I migrated to uh, the U.S., working on their large trading floor in Stanford, Connecticut, uh, as part of their FX strategy team. Both great experiences, part of the the big global macro uh, team there. Um, you know, experience and and uh, you know the opportunity to work with fixed income people, with FX folks, with commodities people, with all the country economists, uh, asset allocation. Just an amazing experience to be able to kind of take from all those you know various uh, various areas of of macro and, and economics and kind of learn learn the trade, so to speak. An exceptionally bright team. I mean, it was definitely taking a lot more than I was giving, especially at that young age. And it was really, really a great experience. Um, I spent a lot of time when I was in Toronto on the economics team working with the the FX team. And then when an opportunity opened up and somebody left, I went to Lehman of all places. Uh, I, uh, exactly, right? <laughs> I ended up uh, ended up taking that seat, which was, uh, which was an amazing experience. And it really helped propel the rest of my career. Uh, I felt like those four years were worth two or three times uh, the amount of work experience. It was just such a such a quality experience. I really enjoyed being there. Great. Yeah. Um, and then after uh, UBS, I know you spent uh, some time at the Bank of Canada. Uh, tell me a little bit about your time at the Bank of Canada and what you've taken from that experience uh, to your present role. The bank's always a great experience. I recommend it for anybody that has interest in economics or macro or strategy. Uh, having central bank experience, I think, is really helpful. To be fair, I didn't spend a, a massive amount of time there. Uh, I kind of was a little bit different where generally when you go to the bank, you maybe do a master's or a PhD and you go, and mm -hmm. then maybe you come and go to the private sector after that, or maybe you're a lifer. I kind of went in you know, mid-ish career, the beginning of my mid, the midpoint of my career. Uh, so they hired me at a somewhat senior level, not super senior, but somewhat senior, uh, as a senior trader on the foreign reserves team. So every central bank has a foreign reserves pot, you know, often sure. a, a rainy day fund, or you know, often for emerging market central banks, they're you know what you use to intervene in in, in FX markets. Right. Canada hasn't intervened since '98, but uh, you know the rainy day fund is there in case the country needs it. So I was helping to manage part of that, uh, you know, part of a small team of about eight or nine people. Uh, my particular role was co-managing part of the short end of the, the treasury curve. So kind of anything inside one or two years uh, and also doing some corporate paper and some supra paper and kind of trading that. Uh, so that was, a, that was a great experience. And also I did some internal uh, papers for, you know, for governing council and, and the senior leadership uh, and then senior managers at the, at the bank as well. Never published per se, more kind of just market oriented. But the biggest experience there, probably besides the trading side, was the... Uh, the ability to kind of brief governing council. Um, so every morning uh, there would be a briefing team that would um, literally do that, brief governing council. They would call in and we would uh, you know, brief them on what we thought was important for markets and what they needed to know. And then, of course, you had these bat phones throughout the trading floor that you know governing council could just pick up and call into the trading desk and find out you know, what was going on at any particular time. So I was part of that briefing team, um, you know, for basically my entire time there, which is probably one of the reasons they wanted me there, because I'd obviously been at UBS, had had some decent experience around, you know, large trading floors, 
um, you know, and, and markets that moved quickly. Um, and so I think that was a really interesting, you know, a really interesting thing for them to have that on board, uh, moving, you know, living in Ottawa and moving to Ottawa for that. Um, you know, knowing what how a central bank works, or at least in this particular case, the Bank of Canada, right. I think is exceptionally helpful for my job. I mean, obviously, it's been a number of years. I haven't worked there since 06. Sure. But the idea of the intricacies and the mechanics of how a central bank works, I think, is very, very helpful. Um you know, for anybody that's doing strategy or macro or economics mm-hmm. to kind of get into somebody's head or like a group's head and, you know, what they might be thinking in the process. So uh, that, that's that been something that I've carried with me ever since working at the Bank of Canada. I think it definitely helps in this role here. And the way that the Bank of Canada is structured, is that similar to most central banks? Yes and no. I mean, the you know, the U.S., you know, Fed is obviously its own animal oh, with all the yeah. district banks. Um you know, Bank Canada is a little bit different insofar as the governing council does not really release um, the, the, you know, the vote count. We don't really know who said what okay. and who voted for what. So the bank's a little bit, this bank here is a little bit more opaque than maybe some of the other, some of the other central banks. Um, like Bank of England, you'll get a count, right? It's nine people on the, on the board. You know, I think the last decision was seven to two or six to three or something like that. But you know. Right. With BOC, you really don't know. Uh, so it's a little bit different. But I think the deliberation process is probably very, very similar. Um, but the output side of it, so to speak, might be a little bit different here than, say, some of the other major central banks. Great. Um, so after Bank of Canada, I, I understand you had a, a series of roles focused on FX uh, macro, uh, which is clearly your skill set um, that culminated in your position as chief ma- market strategist at Medley. Yeah. What is a chief market strategist, and, and what did you do? Medley was a great role. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing firm that's been able to put together a really interesting business model um, where they they kind of look at the world and look at information in a slightly different way than maybe the the classic uh, quantitative way, and they're a little more qualitative. Uh, I really learned a lot and took a lot from that role. My role effectively was to be the point person for any any clients that were you know mine or I shared in terms of uh, you know servicing, when they came in with market questions, I would be the person that would you know handle that. Mm-hmm. But the role itself was effectively in between outside clients and our internal research staff. So I would take what our research staff were putting together, our analysts were putting together, uh, and effectively say, okay, if true, then. This is interesting because this is not priced by the market or it is priced by the market. And so I would take that information and basically, you know, parlay it to clients and say, I think this is how we can make money, you know. And as you get to know clients a little bit better and kind of understand their book uh, and how they think and how they act, you know, you can be proactive. So, you know, I might say, hey, I heard, you know, this is what we're thinking and kind of bring it to them as opposed to having them, you know, wait for me or wait wait to ask questions for me. Right. Uh, so kind of a push versus a pull. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think people found that, you know, pretty helpful. So I was in that job for over five years and I had mostly the same client list. So kind of by year two, year three, you really kind of get to understand and know your clients very well. And I thought, you know, I had, I had five or six clients that, you know, of 20 or, you know, 25 that were, you know, exceptionally close, of which McKenzie was one. Right. Uh, and that's how I ended up actually coming here. And what prompted that decision? Um, I had always wanted to get to the buy side. Uh, buy side was kind of a, a, a goal and a dream of mine. Uh, and I was you know, able to put that together. I worked very closely with the fixed income team here, in particular Constantine, who runs all our global mandates, but also Felix, who runs all our core, uh, our core books. Right. Uh, and Steve, to a point, although not as much because he's obviously quite busy. Uh, but I had very good interaction with, uh, with those two PMs in particular. Uh, and I also worked with Todd Matina a little bit on the asset allocation side back in the day. Uh, everyone was great. And it got to the point in 17 where I basically uh, spoke with uh, Constantine and I said, hey, what do you think about uh, having someone on staff full time? And we talked about it. We both agreed it would be interesting. And, uh, you know, he helped bring me in and uh, spoke with Steve and the rest is history. Great. Yeah. And how has it been so far? Uh, you've made uh, your way to the buy side and you said yeah. it was an aspiration of yours. Yeah. Um, any surprises or is, is it is as you expected? I mean, there's always surprises. I think, with every, with every job. But generally, I think it's been an amazing experience. It's, it's a great seat. Uh, the team's amazing. Um, I've really enjoyed being here. I grew up in Toronto. It's nice to come back after being in the States for 
well, 12 years the second round, you know, a little, a few years in the first round too. Right. Uh, so it's nice to come back. I was in the States from 06 to 18. So uh, it's been really, it's been really great. Uh, the team, the team is uh, right on top of things. I think they really enjoy hearing about themes. I think we all work well together. I've been a part of the due diligence process. Uh, going out and speaking to people across the country, which has also been excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve has done a great job kind of crafting the role and kind of taking what I think we, he and I both think are my best you know, skill sets and applying that to how we can generate alpha within the team. And it's been, uh, it's been a really great experience. I'm very happy to be here. Great. Yeah, just refer to some themes that you help uh, craft and, and identify for the fixed income team. One of those themes that I know that you were early to was this concept of reinflation. Uh, tell me about uh, the reinflation trade, the thesis behind it, and where it currently is within the different portfolios. Yeah, for sure. So it's been a key theme for us for even all of 19. Um, I would say Q4 18 is is when we really started to pick up on it, and uh, I think in the you know from a market perspective, we really saw a lot of people pick up on it in Q4 19, especially in the later half. Mm-hmm. When you looked at a lot of these 2020 outlooks, almost everybody was talking about the reflationary theme. Um, the genesis of that is coming from really two parts. I would say the Fed is the big driver. So the Fed is embarking on a review program that is going to probably recraft uh, and reframe the way it looks and reacts to inflation going forward. Traditionally, the Fed has looked at core PCE as its main inflation measure, and that's debatable whether that's the right one or not, but that's what the Fed has been using. And I would still say that I think that's what the Fed will continue to use. But the idea is that that should be around 2%, and that target should be symmetrical around 2%. But since the Fed brought in that target in 2012, they have consistently, generally, undershot that 2%. They've missed it on the downside. And the Fed's effectively had a um, a model where, you know, if let's say we missed it in 17, well, that's too bad. We'll try and get it right this year. Oh, we missed it in 18. We'll try and get it right this year. Oh, right. we missed it last year. Eh, well, we'll try and get it right. Now, what I think is going to happen, and this is still all TBD, but what I think is going to happen is that the Fed is going to move to a makeup strategy. Oh, we missed in 17 by X. Okay, we need to make up for this later. Missed in 18. Okay, wow. Well, we need to make up for this for later and so on and so forth. So that probably means that the Fed is going to run at a minimum inflation hot and maybe even the economy hot, which means there's a different dynamic and a different reaction function probably coming to the later part of this cycle whenever the Fed decides to uh, either lower interest rates again and then obviously eventually will hike interest rates at some point. Right. But that reaction function is probably going to be different going forward. So that's very interesting for fixed income markets, uh, particularly because the Fed will allow inflation to run hot. Now, we don't know exactly what it's going to be. My guess is it's going, they're going to let core PCE at an annual rate run at least above 2.5%, okay. maybe even up into the high twos. And not for a month or two or a quarter, probably for years to allow for this makeup strategy in previous years because they've undershot the 2% for so long. I mean, that's a big deal for all markets, for all risk assets. Sure. It's a big deal for fixed income markets in particular, which is obviously why, you know, I'm speaking here today. You know, that means that if inflation runs hot, then uh, trades like uh, curve steepeners and tips trades become very, very interesting. And we have, you know, uh, moved our portfolio and, and made trades and allocations, you know, accordingly across across the board for all the portfolios, because we think that's going to be a key theme for the Fed going forward. Now, again, a lot of this has yet to happen. Sure, I think the Fed is going to start releasing information going into the June FOMC meeting, but they probably won't do a hard change in framework until after the election, which is obviously November of this year. Uh, and, and maybe so, I'm, I'm kind of targeting December the December FOMC, that could even still be early. But at some point, it doesn't really matter when the Fed actually announces it. It's about when uh, there's enough information out there that the market's trading off of. By then, it's generally too late, or at least the you know the juice of the trade is already gone. Right. So you want to be ahead of it. And I feel like we have been ahead of it as a team, which is great. So, you know, it's it's a it's a big it's a big position for us, uh, and it's now at a point where we just need to monitor it. Uh, and make sure that things kind of come together as we expect. 
And what would be behind the Fed's desire to run inflation hot? I mean, obviously, they have the target that they've missed. Right. Uh, but from an actual um, output point of view, what are they trying to achieve? So I think uh, late last year, if you kind of read between the lines and knew what you were looking for, there were a couple of things that uh, a few of the senior leaders on the Fed actually said that A, probably probably said that they made a mistake in December of uh, December 18 of hiking. They probably right. wish they had that one back. Sure. But I think the real interesting one is that they probably think that the full the, the full employment or the rate of full employment is actually lower than what they had thought previously. So they can run the economy hot and instead of maybe having full employment at I don't know 36, 37, 38, something in there, Maybe it's in the low threes. Okay. So you can really juice it and try and get the economy to go that much more. Tangentially, the Fed's been embarking on this Fed Fed listening tour for over a year. And they've basically done these town halls all around the country. And it's been, in my understanding, incredibly valuable for the Fed in terms of feedback they've been getting. The economy's been doing so well in the States and the labor market's been so tight yes. that you've been seeing all, at least this is what they're getting. They've been hearing that all these people who have been kind of on the bubble or marginalized and not in the labor force for a while have, you know, the labor market's so tight that those people are actually able to get back into the labor force and start working again. And the Fed takes, um, I would say, a huge amount of pride in having been able to help engineer or at least partially engineer, you know, part of that. Uh, I think that's a big deal. And so that is also feeding into the lexicon of, well, let's keep it going. Right. Let's try and keep it going. I remember I was at the uh, the Powell speech in New York in November 2018, and they had already hiked a couple of times. But Powell said this really interesting comment somewhat off the cuff. He basically said, look, Australia's had uh, an economic expansion, no recession for 26 years. How come we can't do that? And it was a bit of an epiphany moment where you thought, wow, that's actually what they're going to do. They're right. going to basically do almost a whatever it takes moment, you know, from Draghi in July 2012. Mm -hmm. We're going to do whatever it takes to run this economy and keep this ex economic expansion going. How come we can't? And we're already in year 11 or so, right? Yes. How come we can't have 15 or 20 or 25 years without a recession? And I genuinely think that is where this Fed is going. And if inflation needs to run hot because of that, so be it, because we got to kind of make up for lost time anyway. And it's bringing in all these you know, people that might have been on the margin back into the labor force. And that's constructive for wages, for people, for communities. So it's they view it as very constructive. So I think that's all where it's coming from. And what's their ability to actually engineer that? I mean, I think about the past actions of the Fed. Um, they would be what you'd expect to be inflationary, but you, they've missed. I mean, you have things like quantitative easing, uh, ultra-low interest rates. Uh, how will the Fed actually be able to engineer inflation running hot? I think that is the question. Um, there's only a certain amount of tools in the toolkit that they have. Right. Uh, so I think you're bang on. You know what is the transmission mechanism here to make this successful, and that's still TBD. I mean, I know what I would do. Not that I have all the answers because I certainly don't. But you know, if this is the if this is the mo, if this is the you know the play you know the playbook for the Fed, I would try and get meetings with uh, every CEO and every CFO in the S and P 1000, and effectively explain to them what they're going to do, which is look when the economy picks up, we will not be hiking rates. So don't be afraid to do CapEx, right? Right. Don't be afraid to do more R&D, right? Things are different. And explain to them, you know, the change in the framework and how things are now different. Because what you don't want is for CFOs and CEOs to pull back on CapEx. I think that is a very key, you know, that's a very key part of making sure that the Fed gets the results that it wants. So that's what I would do. Um, I think more challenging is the communication to Main Street as opposed to, you know, I wouldn't call it Wall Street, but at least corporate America. Right. Uh, that, is, that is a little more challenging. And I think the Fed is still trying to figure out how to do that. Regardless, the transmission mechanism will be will be challenging. Uh, and, you know, remains to be seen if it gets, you know, if it actually gets executed properly. But I think that is what the Fed is going to try and do anyway. Interesting. Um, 
when you think about inflation, the other uh, side that you can think of uh, pulling is on fiscal as opposed to monetary policy. Right. Um, give me some of your uh, projections for fiscal policy. Uh, maybe we can start in uh, the U.S., but I also think that Europe is quite a uh, interesting case sure. with uh, Christine Lagarde calling for uh, more fiscal uh, spending. So Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the fiscal story is kind of the second story, probably slightly less than the Fed, but it's another reason why you know, I and I think many on the team believe in this reflationary idea mm-hmm. and trade, you know, for 2020. I think the world is moving much closer towards, um, I wouldn't say necessarily a global fiscal compact, but at least more fiscal spending and the idea that, you know, central banks can't do it alone and they're effectively at the end or close to the end of the road. And they need some help from governments in terms of, uh, you know, stimulus spending, you know, preferably, you know, in tandem with low rates. Uh, in the U.S., I think, frankly, in many ways, we've already had the you know the big fiscal spend, right? right. The Trump tax cuts yeah. were uh, significant. Um, you know, like him or don't like him, I would say that you know corporate America is on fire in a good way uh, because the corporate tax rate was lowered from the low 30s to the low 20s. Right. I mean, that has had a huge, you know, adrenaline given a huge adrenaline shot to corporate America. Never mind the personal tax, you know, sorts sure. of sorts of changes. So I think that's happening. Are we going to get something before the election this year? Uh, probably not. Not with this fractured Congress. I think that's highly unlikely. There was a, a talk. There was talk for a long time of an infrastructure bill. Yes. You know that kind of came and went, and came and went, and came and went. Doesn't look like it's going to happen. I think if Trump gets a second term, it'll definitely be back on the back on the agenda. And frankly, if a, a Democrat gets it, it'll probably be back on the agenda as well. Um, so the fiscal stuff in the U.S. is probably not happening, at least at a federal level, for the immediate future. I think the real interesting story globally on the fiscal side, as you suggested, is in Europe. Um, we are seeing a lot more uh, commentary, whether it's in the press or by Lagarde or by politicians or people that you wouldn't necessarily have expected. A lot of, a lot of commentary around adding, adding to the fiscal story. Um, and then within the fiscal story, the kind of ESG or climate or green mm. is getting a big, you know, a big dis- is having a big discussion around that. Um, the the stick in the mud right now is probably the uh, the Germans. Right. Um, the Germans are uh, exceptionally, uh, you know, good with their money uh, and very conservative with their with their budget. They talk about the black zero, so to speak. So even in times of surplus, they don't necessarily want to do any kind of material spending. What's interesting, I think, is that the electorate in Germany is starting to change. You're seeing the Green Party, which isn't necessarily the same as what you would associate maybe the Green Party here. Uh, it's probably a little more centrist in, ter- in the way the way it works in Germany. But you're seeing the Green Party in Germany pick up a lot of voters, especially young professional voters across the spectrum in Germany. And taking it away from you know Merkel's party, which is center right, or the SPD party, which is center left, and the Green Party obviously wants to spend on climate initiatives um, and green and clean initiatives. That that change in the electorate is probably going to end up with some sort of change in the way Germany deals with its budget and the black zero. And Merkel's election is coming up uh, in twenty one. Uh, it will. It will be a definitive election in terms of, I mean, she won't run again. I highly doubt she will run again. She's right. already effectively said she won't. Mm-hmm. But that election and the and the makeup or the, you know, the coalition of that election is going to be a big deal. The question is, will they make it to 21? I mean, if Germany, if Germany kind of moves and starts doing some sort of fiscal spend, it's going to be dominoes, right? Everyone else is going to do it. That said, you're already seeing a few things happening. You know, the Netherlands has also done a little package already. Some interesting things happening next door in Austria uh, with a right-wing party uh, and, a, and a green party coming together to put together a fiscal package mm-hmm. that has some climate initiatives on it, something you wouldn't have necessarily expected. Right. So you're seeing little pockets of this and you're seeing more talk of it in Europe. I think it happens. I don't know when it happens. Okay. I think it probably... You know, it could be a 2020 story, maybe second half of 2020 story. But I feel like it's one of these things like when it happens, it's just going to break through the dam very, very quickly. And Lagarde is obviously, to your question, obviously, you know, pushing it very hard. She was pushing it before she even had the chair uh, for ECB on November 1st. Uh, And she, in many ways, is the right person to actually stitch that together, right? Stitch together 
central bank monetary policy, but also use her political background and wherewithal to make phone calls and make things happen. So that, you know, if Europe continues to, you know, stick in the mud, so to speak, uh, they will, you know, have a chance of actually doing some relatively constructive growth in the years ahead. Great. Um, so the thesis is that there'd be some fiscal stimulus focused on uh, ESG. Any idea where that money would actually be spent? Is are you talking about infrastructure upgrades? Are you talking about investments in new technologies? What or is it everything? Yeah, I think it's. I think both of, both those are right. Um, infrastructure for sure. Uh, clean technologies, new technologies. Yeah. I think it's across the board. I think it depends on the country and what and, and you know and what they need. But I think anything's. I think anything is possible as long as it's. And, and, and to be fair, I don't think it's all going to be green and you know sure. climate, uh, but I think there's a push for that, uh, and I think that you're going to see a lot of investment. Um, and I think Europe, you know, I think Europe has to drive it. You know, I think Europe has to drive global fiscal spending, and I think Germany probably has to drive the European fiscal spending story. So it's very interesting to kind of keep an eye on the on the German story and watch the electorate there and see kind of how how the plates are shifting. Great. Let's turn our attention to uh, the U.S. Uh, as you've referenced a couple of times, uh, 2020 is an election year. Um, so let's start with a easy one for you. Uh, who's going to win the presidential uh, election? <laughs> right. We could spend the whole podcast, probably the whole day on the election. Um, I think it's too close to call. Okay. I think the election is effectively down to three states. Uh, and that's not really me being insightful. I think a lot of people are saying the same thing. Sure. Um, Pennsylvania. Wisconsin and Michigan will probably decide the election. Keep in mind that Trump won those three states by a total, a total of 77,000 votes uh-huh. cumulative uh, in 2016. That's tight. Mm-hmm. It's very tight. Um, it, it is it is very challenging. I think the first question, and we'll probably get there, is, you know, what does the Democrat nominee look like and who right. is it, right? Um, but I think that it's going to be a bit of a horse race all the way into into November. Uh, Trump's approval rating, again, like him or not, Trump's approval rating within the Republican Party is astronomically high. Mm-hmm. The last I saw, it was in the high 80s. Uh, it's a big number. You know, you generally don't even you generally don't see that for anybody. He has clearly re re-imaged and reformed the party, um, and has energized the base. And you can't discount that. Uh, and people will come out to vote for him in 2020, for sure. His base will come out. And if we look at uh, the Democrats, which you've uh, alluded to, yep. uh, right now there's a horse race uh, with, call it, five viable candidates. Yep. Um, you can easily put them in different camps, one being more centrist, one being quite far left. Yep. Uh, how do you see those different camps doing, uh, maybe specifically on, on uh, some of your, your names that you're watching? Yeah, sure. I think I think you're right. There's probably five in the field right now. I would say, um, you know, Bloomberg, Biden, Buttigieg, Warren, and Sanders are probably the five. Uh, we saw Cory Booker drop out yesterday. Um, you know, I think that if it's going to be a Sanders or a Warren, uh, it makes Trump's reelection a lot more likely. I think uh, I think it makes uh, it's just very difficult for a lot of the electorate, I think, to vote for for those two far left candidates. Um, you know, Biden has done quite well uh, in a polling, from a polling perspective, mm-hmm. even though he had a, a few gaffes over the summer and some of his debates were not great. Uh, and he, as, as a consequence, was not able to raise a lot of money soon thereafter. You know, he's still in it. Uh, and Bloomberg has an outrageous amount of money. I heard, I was, in a, I was at a conference in D.C. last week, a U.S. policy conference in D.C. last week, and one of the speakers was saying that uh, he had heard that he, Bloomberg told his staff try to keep spending for the primaries under one and a half billion dollars. Wow! I mean, that's the amount of money that he's willing to. Spend. I mean, it's a lot of money. Yeah. I think he's actually spent over two hundred million already, and there's a long way to go. I don't know who the nominee is going to be. I know it's probably going to be a horse race right to the July conference. It's probably going to be a contested uh, uh, conference. And I think it's going to be down to the wire. Bloomberg could could play kingmaker. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't think the nominee going into the the you know the the, the conference is going to be is going to be Bloomberg. Um, and you know and Warren has lost a lot of momentum of late, and right. that that momentum has actually gone towards Sanders. You're seeing Sanders leading the Iowa polls going into early February. 
so we'll see where we are after Super Tuesday, which is a bigger deal this year than most years because California is included in Super Tuesday this year. Right. So we'll probably have a bit of a narrowing of the field or at least a clarification of where the field is after Super Tuesday, which is March 3rd. Great. And then depending on um, that, uh, whoever the Democrats nominate, you, you mentioned if they go with uh, Sanders or Warren, probably pretty difficult. Yeah. Um, what would you give the chances if you had to? I know we're a long way away and it's difficult <laughs> to do. Yeah. Uh, but if uh, one of the remaining Bloomberg, uh, Buttigieg or Biden is, in fact, uh, named the Democratic nominee, mm-hmm. what would you say their chances are against a Trump? I still think it's Trump's to lose. OK. Um, you know, it's probably it's probably a third. Okay. You know, 30 or 40%, something in there. There's something really interesting about the U.S. electorate, which I, I knew kind of, but it was solidified last week when I was in Washington. So I saw Jim Messina speak. Um, he ran Obama's re-election campaign in 2012. Uh, super bright guy and um, was deputy chief of staff as well for Obama. And he's big on data, so which doesn't mean polls. He's big on kind of scraping data. And he has his own firm now and has worked for the UK and a bunch of other governments and you know the Brexit story and anyway. So he's he gave a he gave a talk yes last week and I thought it was very interesting. He said, you know, the US is very steady in terms of uh, its electorate. Only nine percent of the electorate in the US is a swing voter, wow. which is very small compared to a lot of other countries. Sure. Uh, like effectively, 91% of people, as we sit here today, have effectively made up their minds. And so if you say, okay, 9% of the electorate is a swing voter, what does that mean if Warren or Sanders is the Democratic nominee, right? Are they really going to swing that far left? Maybe. Maybe. Um, and, of course, it doesn't necessarily matter how much you get in terms of popular voters we saw in 16. It's, right. You know, it's all about the Electoral College. But... That's why I think uh, a Biden, if he or Buttigieg or Bloomberg is the nominee, there's a much higher probability because that because effectively 90 plus percent of the people have already made up their mind. And it's very difficult, I think, to see people that are around the middle effectively swinging that far left, at least a lot of them enough to swing the whole thing. Right. So that's that's probably, you know, the best way to kind of look at it from my from my perspective. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, sticking with the U.S., um, and let's talk about uh, trade uh, in general. Sure. Um, so it sounds like uh, China and U.S. are coming to some sort of phase one agreement. Right. Um, we'll know in the coming days probably if mm-hmm. that is solidified or not. Yeah. Um, what's your view on uh, if that does get done, first of all, and if there's a second phase, uh, particularly in 2020? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say since I got here in May 18, the, the trade story, in particular the U.S. trade story, has been probably the dominant or one of the dominant themes that you know we've focused on from a market and macro perspective. Um, I think we're finally at the culmination of at least round one of this. Um, the Beijing delegation is in Washington as of yesterday, mm-hmm. uh, and they are supposed to sign tomorrow. And we've seen constructive commentary from uh, the Chinese delegation and China proper uh, over the past few days. So I, I, unless something very odd happens, it looks like the phase one deal will be signed. Uh, and it basically has the China buying about $200 billion in various goods and services from the U.S. on an annual basis going forward. I think that's mostly in the price for markets. I think okay. if it gets signed tomorrow, I don't think we're going to have like a 5% day higher in equities or you know, some very outlandish day in fixed income. Um, what I do think is interesting now is what happens with phase two. And this mm-hmm. kind of draws on the topic we were just were at, right? It's difficult for me to believe that China is going to embark on a very significant phase two negotiation, which really has to include the IP theft stuff and the joint venture stuff. And some of these more difficult things are kind of beyond the headlines of just, let's just go buy goods. Let's just go you know, agree to get services. Now we're actually structurally changing how we do business and how we you know, manage our economy. And I think that that's going to be, um, I think that's going to be a little more challenging, especially because, like I said, and again, it's only my opinion per se, but I think it's tough to call the general election. And I think it's also tough to call who's going to be a Democratic nominee. Right. If I'm China, I don't want to necessarily be having that negotiation right now. Because, yeah, you might not get as friendly on the other side, but you might also get friendlier. But you don't know. I don't think anybody knows. Uh, so what does that mean for phase two? You know, it's possible we see some discussions and lip service and a few back and forths. But I think phase two is going to be more difficult than phase one. And look how long it's taken, 
you know, the U.S. and, and China to put phase one together. Sure. So I think, you know, that coupled with the election on the horizon, I think it makes it challenging. I don't necessarily think that that's bad news for uh, the U.S. or the global economy. Um, but I think it is, you know, an, another set of headlines that the market's going to have to watch. I guess my biggest concern is, is the phase one agreement going to be enough for these CEOs and CFOs to have enough confidence to restart CapEx? And it kind of ties in the, you know, the Fed story that we, start, we started with earlier, right? Yeah. Is that enough? You know, have you seen enough clarity in terms of the scope of where you're going to be the next one, two, three, five years to make those investments? And I don't really have a good answer for that. I think it's, I think it's, and that probably means some, for some it's, yeah, let's do it, depending on their own business needs. And for some it's, you know what, let's hold back. So I think that there's a bit of an issue there in terms of not getting the phase two stuff off the ground that will hold back the U.S. economy, which is one of the reasons I think that the U.S., is probably, as I'm calling it to the team, a, a trend at best economy for 2020. You know, I think you can maybe get two and a half percent, but I don't think this is a three and a half year. You know, I think this is probably a, a high ones year or a low twos year. I don't think this is a three plus year. And part of the reason is because of the the skittishness on the CapEx side, not only from the China trade story, mm-hmm. uh, but also, you know, the transmission mechanism that we were talking about before, right. you know, from the Fed. And you know how successful that's going to be. So these are you know these are this is how a lot of these macro themes start to fit together in terms of you know the big the bigger puzzle and obviously you know the potential impact for markets. So heading into 2020, there's several uh, risks on the table. You've talked a lot about uh, the Fed looking to reinflate the economy, uh, U.S. presidential election, trade wars. Um, a lot of these are fairly unconventional. We don't have a lot of history to look at uh, right. to identify uh, risks due to that, um, due to those policies. Right. What do you view as uh, some of the biggest risks? Yeah, for sure. I think there's you know there's a couple of easy ones that people often cite, even though they're probably not a major issue. Things like Brexit, and obviously what's happened in the last couple of weeks. You get you, people throw the geopolitical sure. Iran story out there. I mean, the, yes, those are risks. I don't want to minimize them, but I think they're kind of easy pickings. I do think you know the Fed not being able to properly transmit its new mandate is something that kind of on a second or third level uh, people need to understand, and that's a, that's a major risk because if that doesn't happen properly, then you know starting to run out of tools pretty fast. Right. Uh, you've got uh, inflation you know lower than it needs to be. Uh, talk of QE four, a real QE four. Uh, and those sorts of things, you know, that's an issue. Also, I mean, you know, I could be very wrong on the U.S. election, right? I mean, if it's a Sanders nomination or a Warren nomination, the market is not priced for that. Right. And for the purposes of this conversation, I am completely agnostic. But I'm just saying from a market perspective, you know, equities are obviously where they are, right? Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, credit, you know, credit is where it is, right? I mean, in, in, uh, investment grade, high yield, you know, very, very tight, uh, com- you know, compared to, uh, historical averages, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that is a market that is not priced for a significant change in the largest government and the largest and most powerful economic country in the world. Right. Uh, so that's a risk. Not that I necessarily see it happening, but you know, <laughs> I've seen enough black swan events here to kind of you know get concerned once in a while, and the market is not looking at it. And that's why I'm, I think February is very interesting. See what happens in Iowa, in New Hampshire. And Super Tuesday, right? And you know, we could see, you know, we could see a, a Sanders or a Warren emerge after March third as the clear leader mm-hmm. uh, in that race. The market will have to readjust where its risk parameters are. So on the U.S. election side, pretty clear forward uh, indicators uh, at Super Tuesday. You get to see the results. Yep. Uh, on the Fed transmission side and their ability to generate inflation, right. what are you looking for for early signs if they would be successful or not successful in their ability to do that? I mean, it's probably not going to happen until later this year. I mean, obviously, you want to see the data move higher, right? right? You want to see core PCE on an annual basis move higher. You know, the CPI stuff helps as well. But unless the Fed changes the actual... Uh, metric that it wants to target. CPI is interesting, but it's probably not the defining factor. You really want to see core PCE start to, you know, start to tick higher. And until you really see that, that's really where, you know, the rubber is going to hit the road. Um, you're probably not going to see that until later this year anyway. So uh, in many ways, this this tips positioning, this curve steepening positioning is 
early. I think a lot of people want to get into it to try and get ahead of, I don't want to say ahead of the curve because that's a terrible thing to say with this, <laughs> sure. but to try and get ahead of the idea. Right. Um, and I think that a lot of people have, right? We've seen other we've seen other people start to believe in that and, and pile into it. Um, but it's going to take a while for it to come together. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's a risk associated with, you know, I'm in too early. You know, and I'm overpositioned. Not necessarily us, but anybody, right? And you kind of give up on the trade before it actually comes to fruition. Right. That's always a risk with any trade. You're early. You're right, uh, but you're early. Mm-hmm. You know, which is the case with any trade, right? You can be right, but if you're early, it doesn't necessarily matter. Sure. Because uh, the market can trade against you for a long time, right? So we'll see. Um, but I think that that is uh, that is something that we'll have to watch for the rest of the year. Thanks for those insights, Dustin. I'm now going to turn to the bite section of the conversation. Uh, today is the January 14th, 2020, uh, and I'd like to go through a bit of a speed round. I'm going to throw out some topics, uh, get your projection uh, for 2020 on various different topics. Sure. Um, let's start with Canadian interest rates. Okay. Uh, do you expect them to go lower, higher, remain neutral? Well, I think the Bank, Bank Canada will cut its policy rate at some point this year. Um, you know, we've been targeting April as a possibility. Okay. Uh, some of the banks are with us on it, some are not. Um, but I do think the bank will ease interest rates this year for a couple of reasons. One, I don't think they'll get the fiscal story or the fiscal spend from the Trudeau government that they were hoping for. Um, we saw the budget update in the late, later in the fall, and it was uh, you know not super not super strong. But I do think that uh, uh, the bank will need to ease, and they're also at the top end of the G10 pecking order in terms of the highest rate. Right. But in terms of the curve and rates themselves, you know, we believe in a steepener, right? Mm-hmm. We believe in in the um, in, in the Canadian version of tips, right, which is uh, real return bonds. So we have, you know, we believe in uh, you know, that that curve steepening structure, particularly in the long run of the curve, like fives, thirties, or tens, thirties, not the usual twos, tens. Okay. Uh, but yeah, that's the way we would look at it. Uh, but but so policy rates lower, so the near end of the curve, but the long end of the curve higher. One cut, two cuts. How far lower are you expecting? Right now, I'll say one cut because that's okay. out of consensus. Um, but you know, I could make the I could make the case for more. But I think the bank will. I, th- I do think the bank will want to tweak at some point. And I think the new governor, assuming it's Wilkins, uh, and I, you know, um, and she's obviously senior deputy governor at this point. Uh, I think she's a little a little more dovish than Polas. Okay. Uh, so I would, you know, if I'm wrong on April, uh, maybe the back half of the year ends up being in play uh, under her leadership, assuming she gets the role. Perfect. Um, how about U.S. interest rates? So I think the Fed is. Probably on hold for the year. The risk is a move lower. I think the bar to move higher is exceptionally high, uh, for the reasons we've talked about earlier right. in this in this discussion. Right, the Fed wants to run the economy hot, wants to run inflation hot. Pretty much the wrong way to do that would be to hike interest rates, and they probably wish they had December eighteen back already. Sure. So I think that that's lower. But again, you know, curve structure is very similar to what we just discussed for the Canada side. Right, tips, steepeners particularly the long end of the curve, 10s, 30s, 5s, mm-hmm. 30s, you know, that sort of thing. So it's a it's a steeper curve. Uh, and it's, for the U.S., it's a risk of lower lower policy rates. The market's currently priced at 20 basis points for the rest of the year. So call it 80% probability of one cut by the end of the year for the Fed. Okay. Uh, let's turn to currencies. Uh, how, Canadian dollar versus U.S.? So I'm generally a believer that the Canadian dollar should weaken uh, for the year. Um, we have had a relatively good call on on our outlook for the U.S. dollar. I think a lot of people going into 19 expected the U.S. dollar to fall out of bed. Uh, we didn't think it would, partially because uh, a the U.S. was leading the leading the global economy cyclically, uh, but also. With every currency trade, you effectively need to have. There's two stories. Sure. There's two currencies, right? You right. sell U.S. dollars to buy something, right? You buy Canadian dollars to, and you've probably presumably sold something else. So if you're selling U.S. dollars, you got to go somewhere else. Well, I don't have a good alternative. There is there is no alternative. It's kind of the very simplistic Tina analysis. There is mm-hmm. no alternative. Um, so I don't think the U.S. dollar is going to fall out of bed, um, but I don't think it's going to necessarily rip higher either. 
so that basically means that if the bank cuts here, BOC cuts as right. expected, and the market's not priced because the market's priced about 15, 17 basis points for the rest of the year, okay. and that's only one. Uh, I think there's a little bit of juice there. And I do think that the commentary is going to have to change a little bit from the bank and the the economy here is going to slow a little more maybe than the bank had projected at its most recent uh, monetary policy review. Uh, so we'll find out on the 20, uh, 22nd or 23rd uh, of this month where the bank's at. But Q4 is definitely not shaping up as well as the uh, as the bank had said in, in the October NPR. How about the euro? Euro's tough. I mean, FX vol, as you probably know, has been exceptionally low, basically record yes. lows here, uh, you know, grinding lower throughout the year. I've never seen euro dollar in my in my career stick to such a, uh, a narrow trading range. It's mm-hmm. effectively been between 109 and 113 for quarters and quarters. Um, not expecting a huge breakout in, in, in any direction. So okay. my, my non-call is effectively my call. Uh, I do think vol will pick up, you know, but I don't think this is going to be a... Uh, a 120 or a 105 euro dollar anytime soon. If Europe gets its act together on the fiscal stuff that we spoke about earlier, yes, and surprises to the upside, so to speak, then Europe, then euro should also surprise to the upside. No yeah. surprise. Um, the market's currently not pricing the ECB to do anything um, until the mid until middle of 2022. So there's a lot of room between now, obviously, and mid 22 to come forward. So if you saw that get priced in, maybe on the back of some good fiscal news, uh, then I, I would expect to see euro appreciate on the back of that. So, you know, now, now you're talking above 115. Okay. Uh, but I think that's the catalyst that you need to see to see euro higher. How about uh, the pound and how much does that have to do with Brexit? <laughs> yeah, a pound is... Uh, Pound has been challenging to call. Uh, it ripped higher, obviously, against the dollar after the um, after the uh, the Brexit news, but has yeah. but has since uh, sunk. Um, you know, there's a cliff edge happening later this year. Uh, I'm concerned about the pound, uh, and I'm probably more than most. And I'm concerned that the Bank of England is going to ease rates, probably more than most. Um, I think the I think the UK and the EU are going to have a very difficult time coming together and putting together this free trade agreement by the end of the year, which is effectively what they have to do now. I mean, it took Canada and the EU the better part of seven or eight years to put together their free trade agreement. And I would argue that this is probably more complicated. And yeah, they're not starting from zero as we sit here today, but there's still a long way to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think it's very challenging to do that. And Johnson has been steadfast in terms of his, we will be leaving, you know, whether we have a deal or whether we don't. And uh, you know, politicians obviously you know have a have a tendency to sometimes change their view. Sure. But he's very very serious, and he ran on it as part of the plank in his platform. So all that to say, look, if there's a hard Brexit at the end of the year, then you know pound is not 127 against the U.S. dollar, right? Like it's it's sub 120, 115. Right. I think there's a risk of that, and I'm not saying it's going to get there, but I'm saying the risks around a hard Brexit later this year uh, are not properly priced by the market. Great. Uh, how about expected returns for uh, higher yielding assets? So high yield loans, um, bonds. Yeah, I mean, I think you know we've had a very last year, twenty nineteen. We've had a, had a, had an exceptional year. Um, you know, I think we'll probably see uh, mid to high single digits on uh, on high yield bonds. Okay, investment grade. Uh, probably about the same. Probably mid to high single digits. Oh, great. Thanks, Dustin. We uh, always conclude these podcasts uh, with a recommendation section. So I'm going to ask you for a couple of uh, recommendations. Oh, sure. Uh, let's start with your favorite books. Uh, I just uh, finished reading uh, An Economist Walks Into a Brothel, uh, which is a provocative title. Yeah, provocative title. Um, it's all about managing risk. Uh, it was a very interesting book. Um, uh, I, I would recommend it. I thought it was great. Uh, I've also read. Um, the uh, Little Black Stretchy Pants, which is the uh, the Lululemon book, uh, which I thought was quite interesting. Uh, I, I, I'm probably going to read next month uh, Shoe Dog, which is the, uh, the, sure. the Phil Knight the Phil Knight Nike book, uh, which I've heard is, is quite good. So I've heard good things about that. I've also read Bad Blood and the last little bit um, and, I'm read a, and read quite a bit about it as well. So uh, those three or four, I think, are, are, are all good reads. And I think Shoe Dog will be a good read, too. Great. Yeah. Uh, how about your favorite podcast? Um, I mean, I really like 
listening to the TED the TED talks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for on, on all subjects, on all various t- subjects, I think they're all very very good. Um, but I'm not listening to as many podcasts as I should, unfortunately. Fair enough. <laughs> Have to get uh, on to more of them. Exactly. Um, how about your favorite central banker in <laughs> history? In history? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I was uh, I was at the bank when Dodge was there. Okay. Um, he's a real character, a very sharp guy. I really enjoyed. You know, I didn't really speak with him a, a huge amount, but uh, I enjoyed being under his leadership. I thought I thought he was great. Um, you know, Greenspan always comes up. Sure. Uh, you know, he's a sage, very bright guy. You know, brought central banking into the I think the modern the modern world. Um, bit of a tarnished legacy, though. With yeah, a little bit with a little bit crisis. with some of the bubbles and yeah. uh, the financial crisis. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and I have very very strong expectations for Lagarde. I think she'll do a wonderful job. Yeah. Great. Uh, how about your favorite places to travel? You obviously travel a lot for your for your job and have spent uh, time in various locations. Yeah, I've been fortunate to kind of work in a number of different cities and, uh, you know, went to school in Montreal, which I always love. I always enjoy going to Montreal. I think it's a fabulous Mm. city, world-class city. Uh, I spent a lot of time in New York having lived there and still go back at least once a quarter to talk to people and sources. Uh, I love going to New York. Um, uh, I also recently went to Barcelona for the first time this past summer, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was a beautiful city, amazing architecture, foods off the charts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Really, really enjoyed that. Uh, and Vancouver's obviously all, anything on the West Coast is great. I was actually in Vancouver and uh, Tofino last year oh, on right. my first trip to Tofino, which was kind of a bucket list place. And uh, I really enjoyed going to Tofino. Very, very relaxed, uh, wonderful food, very nice atmosphere, uh, you know, beautiful topography. I mean, off the charts stuff. I really, really enjoyed being there. And final question, uh, I get to New York every now and then, have a tough time eating affordably in New York. Mm. Uh, where's your favorite place under $40? Uh, there's an Italian restaurant in Soho, of all places, um, mm. called Osteria Marini. Okay. Uh, and it's a, it's a Michael White restaurant, and I think it's excellent. I think it's excellent. He has a higher-end place on Central Park South. Go to the one in, uh, in Soho, and uh, it's all northern Italian. The, okay. pa- the pasta is unbelievable. The veal is incredible, um, and it's kind of like a little farmhouse on the inside. On it's on Lafayette Street, and uh, it's probably my favorite meal in New York under forty bucks. It's really, it's really a wonderful, a wonderful spot. Great, thanks, Dustin, for being so generous with your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice, and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes, and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 